This is RMB's Data Analytics Podcast with Matthew Burnett, where we look at the insightful role that data analytics plays for decision makers. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the RMB Data Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Burnett. I'm the head of data analytics at Rand Merchant Bank. And joining me on the call today is property economist John Lewis. John has been a property economist at F&B for 15 years and has witnessed a lot in that time, specifically how data analytics has improved our idea of property valuation. So, John, hi, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Matt. Thanks for having me. So, John, to start off with, how important is data analytics in the property industry? I think we found it to be incredibly important. Um, if I can take a, back, a trip back down memory lane, uh, about 20 years to just before, as the, the last that, or that decade's housing bubble was just starting to ramp up. It was probably the greatest housing bubble in, or boom in the, the history of South Africa, a consumer and a housing boom. And um, at that stage, we really didn't have much housing market data. There was the old EPSA housing pr- house price data and that's it. It was just house price data. So it started ramping up and eventually it was heading towards about 35% year-on-year growth, I think, at, at its peak in 2004. And, uh, you know, it was, it was good enough to say, well, there's a housing boom here. But it really wasn't good enough to just look at that limited data and say, well, is there a bubble? Is, the, is it a speculative market? Uh, you know, what's going on inside the market? And um, I think that lack of data in South Africa was a key cause of banks actually not understanding that housing bubble. And in the end, they burnt. There was a, there was a good number of billion rands worth of losses at the end of that housing bubble. Now, I, I, I only joined, I, I was at, at another bank at the time, analyzing the housing market as best we could from there. And then with the limited data, and then I moved to FNB in about 2006, and it was a bit, bit too late to ramp up the analysis at that stage. The things were already about to unravel um, in that housing bubble. But, uh, you know, since then, we, we identified the need. When, when, the, when the calamity sort of came in 2008, the financial crisis hit, you know, we realized we just actually didn't have the insights we needed. And set about mining, be it deeds office data, um, our valuations data in far more detail and even going further to get inside the mood of the market with the FNB estate agent survey, which would tell you about the composition of buying. Is there massive buy-to-let buying, which could point to, a, to, to bubbly conditions? We even had a survey about buyer panic. Um, is, there, is there first-time buyer panic building up in the market where they, they panic? If they don't buy now, they'll be too scared to, to uh, or they, they, they won't be able to afford it in future. All those things contribute to a bubble-type environment, and that's a very high-risk environment for banks. So there's no doubt um, that that data and, and, and aggregating surveys into data series is, has been of immense help. I think there's no doubt that since that housing, if, if we were to have another housing bubble now, I think we'd understand it and get, we'd be, be, be inside the, the mind of the market and the dynamics much better than what we were then. We really were found wanting then and, and it hurt. So, so no, there's no, there's, it's undoubtedly um, absolutely crucial from a risk management point of view uh, in the banking sector. John, you've mentioned some fascinating aspects there, and I'm just going to pick up on one or two of them. And the first one you mentioned 
is these surveys. And of course, sentiment analytics is becoming increasingly popular. Uh, this sentiment analytics in the property industry, have you found it to be highly correlated with what's actually happening with valuations and sales? Have you found it to be a leading indicator? Oh, yes. Um, to, it's amazing when you, we've, we started on the commercial side now, property broker survey, but um, that's, that's more recent in the last two years. But on the residential side, we've had the, the estate agent survey going for probably about, it will start in about 2004. It was, it was started just before I arrived there and, and you know, expanded over the years. But, but the, the, the first question, which has been the longest sort of lasting survey question was, your perception of activity levels on a scale of one to 10. Now people would look at that and say, oh, well, you know, you know, an estate agent giving a perception of their activity levels, does it mean anything? But the correlation to the economic and business cycle of that and its, its growth rate is astounding. And it leads the leading indicator of the Reserve Bank. So I was, it, it gave me a fantastic heads up as to economic conditions before the actual economic data releases from the Saab and Stats SA could do that um, because estate agents feel the, 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 the movements in the market immediately. You know, the, the, something in the economy picks up and the telephone starts ringing more. Uh, they feel it very, very quickly. And, and a lot of the economic data which is published just can't keep pace with that. So it's been amazing for, from, a, from, from an even, even understanding the economic cycle. Uh, through surveying those brokers on the ground, feeling the economy as it moves and, and influences that the, the property market and the property demand. It's an amazing example of how aggregating diverse data from these different sources can be incredibly powerful. John, oh, yeah. you've, John you've mentioned there about the defensive analytics, really, and understanding what's going on in the property industry for, for risk analysis and perhaps credit analysis. Is analytics also being used in the property industry for offensive analytics, for, for looking for new opportunities, uh, looking for deals? Uh, I'm not, yeah, probably not as much as it should be on the banking side yet, but certainly where it gets used a lot is companies like Lightstone have sprung up over the years and SAPTG with their area reporting um, where you can, you can draw an area report and you can look at things like comparative sales values uh, to, you know, if, you, if you're going to make a, a bit of an, an offer on a house, uh, you, you can sort of see what the comparative values are in the area. So this guides buyers more. Uh, it also helps estate agents with buyer and seller education. They can use that data, and they do. They use it a lot to, to often moderate property owner expectations and to come along with the data and say to them, listen, you know, you want to put your property on the market. This is the comparative values in the area. When commercial, you know, this is the, 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 the rooters cap rates in the area, whatever it might be, and, and guide the selling values, um, you know, to make them, uh, to get to get them realistic so that these properties don't, hang around on the market for too long. Um, I think the jury's out as to how much it's improved the asking prices and the, 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 real, the price realism of, 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 of sellers, for instance, because you know, I think at the end of the day, even if you show data to people, they don't want to know if their property values dropped or if it's not as much as what they think they are. So there is still, unfortunately, serious downward resistance to 
to to to to to you know to dropping your prices or serious resistance to dropping your prices, and therefore we still do see that property markets do become significantly oversupplied in downturns, and the prices and the values don't adjust immediately; they take a long term to to adjust. But I, but I think over time, having more market information, uh, you know, probably what's lacking is you get comparative sales, you get values. And again, the, you know, that, that seems to always be the emphasis in, in the market is what's the values of property? What's the, you know, the, 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 the F&B house price index was the most populous piece of data ever, you know, in, in all our F&B data. But, you know, often a, a comparative value of a, of a sale around you is done at a non-market equilibrium value. It's done well above that. And the market's not in equilibrium. That was an unrealistic sale, and so, you know, sellers zoom in on that, but they don't have indicators of the demand and supply conditions in the area. So, you know, what, they, what, what you need to go is even further to say to the guy, well, look, here's a comparative sales value in your area. That's fantastic. But it was an unrealistic sale. Um, sometimes you do get unrealistic buyers or, you know, buyers who, you know, don't, should, shouldn't have bought that property at that price. Um, but here's the supply and demand indicators. There's a big oversupply. Um, and so you can put it on the market at that value, but the chances of you selling it are, are, are remote. So, so I think we've still got a lot of work to do in guiding market realism. Um, so we still do get uh, the we, we still do get um, uh, oversupplied markets. And then when it comes to housing bubbles, now there's a housing bubble forming, I believe, in the United States as we speak now, and, and many other countries for that matter. The problem too is that. Okay, there's data, there's plenty of data, but there's not enough buyer or seller education. Um, and so in a housing bubble, that buyer panic, you know, if you look at the United States, I mean, fantastic housing market data, there's no shortage of it. But there's still, you know, in, in especially the residential market, the buyer is, is, is not educated in property, he buys once and then he doesn't buy again for 20 years in most cases. So buyer panic and all these these crazy things still set in there's not enough the the the, the 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 players in the property market still aren't educated enough they could be because the data is there but they still aren't and so they still panic and they still when 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 prices are going up strongly like now in the US and they still go and buy at unrealistic prices instead of biding their time for a few years and waiting for the market to cool so so data's taken us so far but but you, you've got to use it more. You've got to, you've got to actually use it to educate. Yeah. Fascinating. It's all about, of course, how you use that data. John, over your time as a property economist, we've been collecting more and more and more types of data and, and diverse data sets regarding property and property valuations and different metrics. Has that made your job as a property economist easier or has it made it more difficult for you to find the signal and all of this data noise? I think, I think easier. I think definitely easier. And, uh, you know, going back to that housing bubble, because that's what I tried to analyze after the, the fact, uh, you, you know, and, and build all sorts of affordability indices and all sorts of indicators of risk buildup. And, uh, and that's, that has served us well since. We could, we could identify, I think, in the, in the nick of time that, you know, the Namibian housing market was well overheated, for instance, um, using the methodologies that we had built up for South Africa. So, 
So no, and 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 I'm confident that if you know if 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 a, if, a, if a bubble was building up now, we'd be able to better analyze it and better understand it. So so I think it's it, you know all this data that we've accumulated over the time has made made the job easier. Does it make for less work? No, because um, the more the more analysis you do and the more data you have, the more people ask for more. So uh, you know one thing in in, in in a bank, which it's a nice problem to have, but. But, you know, they just want more and more and more and more granularity all the time. The more you give them, the more they want. So, um, but as I said, it's a nice problem to have. So, so the work never ends. But, um, you know, I think, no, the insights now compared to 20 years ago are phenomenal. Um, far, you know, just far better. John, my, my final question to you is this. There's been a lot of talk of AI in, in the property industry and AI being used to find deals or to aggregate all these multitudes of data to perform analysis. Do you think AI is going to become more prominent in the property industry, specifically in banking and asset management, or do you think there will always need to be a human touch? I think that um, it will. I, I think that's the reality. You know, you know I'm, I, I don't pretend to understand all of these things that are happening, AI and so on, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, often it's, it's phenomenal what, what is happening and how intelligent machines are getting. But I think that where the banking sector, I'm talking about across the world, I'm not singling out anybody in specific specifics, but I think where there's been mistakes in the past and there will be big mistakes again, is that um, they expect the machine or the model to give you 100% of the answer. There's humans in the banking sector, many of them on the risk side, that hope to press a button and get the answer. And I, I, I spent some time in my previous life with at, at IHS Market, an American-based consultancy, and we had some, some, some seriously sort of globally renowned modelers there. And the one thing the one guy always drummed into us is a model and a machine, call it what you like, or a scorecard, or you know, whatever it is in banking, is there to help you make the decision. Once you allow it to make the decision, you're going to get yourself into trouble. And I think that's the rule. There must always be a human behind it. Um, modeling and machines and AI to help decision making, yes. But you know, you 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 saw, you know, as a rule of thumb, if I can, you know, my my simple perception of watching the world unfold, the global financial crisis unfold. The mortgage lenders in the US were probably the most model-driven and automated and all these fancy things in the world, okay? South Africa was somewhere a few, a few years behind. Namibia, we, and we've got our subsidiary in Namibia, was even years behind that, still on the old-fashioned judgmental credit. And out of that crisis, guess who came out the best? Not the United States, not South Africa. It was little old Namibia of the three that I looked at. You know? and, and that was because you had a human being applying his mind. And if the client is bad, the client is bad, he's not getting credit. There's no, it's try and get the machine to make it work. Um, so I think that's an important thing we need. You know, a, a machine and a model is purely there to help the human make a decision. Once you replace the human, I think you're asking for trouble. Absolutely. Some wise words. Uh, the models are certainly there to support us, but, but certainly they, we still are required to 
see what the model's doing, assess it, and see if it's making the right decision and the decision that we can trust and understand. John, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's a pleasure, Matt. Thank you for listening to RNB's Data Analytics with Matthew Bernath podcast. Subscribe now for more episodes.